In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. This is the 17th Sunday after Pentecost, and we are in chapter 21 of St. Matthew's Gospel. We uh, were in... uh, Last week, the parable of the um, tenant and the vineyard, and you remember that uh, we were exonerated to have compassion on one another. No longer how they had served the Lord, uh, how long they had served Him, uh, that we are supposed to celebrate when someone comes to the Lord and receives that benefit. We uh, have skipped over a few uh, verses here, and so it's very important that you uh, remember where we're at in the narrative of St. Matthew's Gospel Uh, We skipped over the beginning of chapter 21 because that's where Jesus uh, enters into the city of Jerusalem. So uh, this is the time when we celebrate the triumphal entry. And of course we uh, read those lessons on Palm Sunday, uh, that Sunday that comes before Easter every year. So we reserve those lessons uh, for that great uh, high and holy feast. So Jesus, in the narrative here of St. Matthew's Gospel, you remember he had positioned himself on the far side of uh, the River Jordan in the Judean wilderness, which is where John was baptizing, which is where uh, Joshua was positioned to lead the people into the Promised Land, which is where Moses is standing and uh, delivering the summary of what God had done for the peoples. And then he crosses over the Jordan River, uh, leading uh, again us into everlasting life and the the promise of uh, the kingdom of God. He goes through Jericho, he goes up that high uh, mount to Jerusalem, climbing thousands of feet uh, in this great distance. And then when he gets to Jerusalem, he goes unto the temple mount and he cleanses the temple. You remember he kicks out the money changers and he turns over the tables and now he is in the temple grounds, he's in that courtyard. And of course the chief priests and the elders just before this passage have come to him and said, by what authority do you do this? In other words, who do you think you are? Right? And so Jesus' response to them about who do, uh, who do you think that I am is to remind them about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is widely regarded by the people as being a holy man of God. He's widely regarded by all of the people as being someone who came and preached repentance of sins, and they couldn't speak out against him. They knew that he was holy, they knew that he was just, and the chief priests and the elders refused to speak out against him, but they couldn't, of course, speak for him either, because he was disrupting what it was that they were doing. Uh, They were... uh, firmly entrenched in the idea that what matters is how you look and what office you hold rather than how you live your life. It's amazing how easy it is that we get into that trap. Uh, Whether it's now or 2,000 years ago, uh, people get into the trap of thinking that when people look smart, they are smart. That's how simple we are, right? And so uh, Jesus gives them this parable which... um, It's going to be hard to find one that's simpler, right? You read this parable and you think, duh, that's easy, right? There's one son who uh, is the one who says he will do it and doesn't, and the one who says he won't do it and does. And of course, this parable is like all the others. It's a simple one-to-one correspondence. So the man is the father, and the two sons are us, those who have been brought into the family of God through baptism, So we have all promised, right, to do the will of God. We've all promised to be obedient to Him. 
And then what Jesus asks is, does it really matter what they said? This is kind of a simple algebraic equation. You cancel out what it was they said they were going to do. That doesn't matter. And the amazing thing is that today, as then, people really get caught up in thinking that what we say we're going to do counts. It doesn't. People get caught up into thinking that if I pray a certain prayer, it means that I've been saved. If I say I'm going to do a certain thing, it means that I've been saved. If I participate in a certain ceremony, it means that I've been saved. None of that matters in the end. What matters is, do we do what the Lord tells us to do? And everybody knows that. Jesus asked this question, who did the will of his Father? The one who went and did it. That's it. That's as simple as it gets. And what's required is for us to be willing to experience regret. The most perhaps painful of all human emotions. We have to be willing to experience and recognize regret. We'll do almost anything to avoid regret. We'll justify ourselves, we'll make excuses, we'll try to forget, we'll do anything not to experience it. But what's required of the son who says, I won't do it, and then finally does, is just that. He has to stop and think to himself, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I wish I hadn't have said that. I'm going to have to go and do what it is that I'm supposed to do. And many times we experience regret and we either, again, justify ourselves or we try to ignore it or we try to bury it or we become frozen. Oh, what can I do? And what's required of us is to move forward and to do the will of God. This is exactly what Ezekiel is again peeling away when he talks to the people of God in Babylon. You remember that the prophet Ezekiel is a contemporary with Jeremiah and with Daniel. And while Jeremiah is in Jerusalem during the final siege of that city as the Babylonians kind of clean up and finish their task and totally demolishing the temple of God, Ezekiel is in Babylon and he's looking over the river and he's looking towards the city of God and he's mourning the loss, he's mourning uh, the sins of his people. Ezekiel is deep in regret. And Ezekiel starts to get into the place like all of us do, that it's because of our fathers or what other people did, or I was put into the position of this sin. It's what happened before me. You know, it's the environment that I'm in. It's the generation that I'm in. All these other excuses. And the Lord for Ezekiel just very clearly cuts all that away. And the Lord says, no. The question is, I told you to do something. Did you do it? That's it. I told you to do something. Did you do it? I didn't give the job to your dad. I didn't give it to your granddad. I'm not talking to the, all, all the nation. I'm talking to you. This is what I gave you to do. 
Did you do it? And so Ezekiel, with beautiful clarity, says that those who do injustice will die for it. There's consequences to our actions. And the consequences of God aren't the kind where we think of this punitive God from on high who steps in and says, well, because you did something that's wrong, I'm going to have to punish you for it. Like a parent that can't figure out natural consequences or how to let them lie. The Lord knows exactly what natural consequences are. Right? So if we, again, step off the curb without looking to see and the bus hits us, natural consequence. Right? If we take what does not belong to us and we're hurt in doing that, natural consequence. If we're intimate with people that we're not married to and our hearts are broken because of it and other people's hearts are broken because of it, natural consequence. So the consequences of God are natural and they're real. And the Lord says that they're there for your benefit so that you can experience regret and turn back to me. He says, repent and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. So the process has begun for us that the first thing that has to happen is we have to be afraid of natural consequence we have to have fear and saint paul is very clear about that isn't he He says we have to work out our faith with fear and trembling and i know that there's lots of preachers out there that spend lots of time trying to tell us that this isn't real fear that this is respect believe me if your bible translators thought that word was respect they would have used it right they would have found another word for fear You see the word fear over and over and over again in the scriptures. It's not a mistake. It's not a mistranslation. We're supposed to be afraid of God. The same way that we're afraid of a good parent. A good parent who's going to hold us accountable for our actions. A good parent who's concerned about us doing what's right. And will make sure that if we don't do what's right, we'll feel the consequences, the natural result of bad actions. And so he's saying you have to work out your faith with fear and trembling. In other words, we need to know that if we choose the wrong path, there will be the result. And the natural result of sin is death. That's it. Because God is life. And if we choose unrighteousness, if we choose sin, we've chosen death. If we choose Him and we choose righteousness... We've chosen life. And so St. Paul says we have to be willing to work out with fear and trembling. And fear is the first step. Fear is the first step in us getting our hearts to the right place. Right? The scriptures say the beginning of wisdom is fear. It's not the end. It's not the final word about wisdom. It's the beginning. Just to get us aware, hey, wait a minute, what I've been doing hasn't been working. I need to find another way. I need to change my life. I need to get it together. I need to figure out what God's plan is. My plan hasn't been working. I think I need to figure out what He wants me to do. The beginning of wisdom. I realized my ways are not God's ways. I need to figure out what His ways are. And I need to align myself with Him. Ezekiel talks about justice over and over again. Justice is a very complex idea. We've talked about this many times before, right? Justice is to be just or to be justified. Here's an example of justification. The left-hand side of your printout is justified. It's lined up. 
God is at the top, and we're either in line with him or we're not. If we're lined up with him, we're under him. We're under his authority, under his protection, under his grace. We're receiving his mercy. We're justified. We're lined up with him. The right-hand side of your page is not justified. Some of these sentences are hanging way out on their own. Not under God's protection, not under his authority, not receiving his justice and mercy. That's not where we want to be. We want to be on this side of the page, not on this side. That's how complex justice and justification is. Pretty difficult concept, isn't it? Either we're doing what God wants us to do, or we're not. And St. Paul says the way for us to get there is to stop thinking so highly of ourselves. Don't you love that? Has that rung more true at any time in the history of the world than now? Where thinking yourself is so great and building each other up. You're so wonderful. You're fantastic. You can do whatever you want to do. Baloney! It's not true. You can't do whatever you want. Right? We're given certain abilities, certain opportunities... To do things, and there are some things that I can do that the rest of you can't do. Because I've got the opportunity. Because the Lord has put me in this place. He's given me a job to do. Each of us has been given a job to do. There's something that only we can do. It doesn't mean we're great. It means that God is great and His plan is perfect. And if we start thinking that we're wonderful, then what we've done is we've given ourselves an antidote to regret. An antidote to regret. We've just dulled that. We've dulled a regret. It just doesn't seem so bad anymore. And so St. Paul says we have to feel that regret deeply by not thinking ourselves so great, by not falling into ambition, by not falling into conceit, by having full humility. What did he say that Christ did? He emptied himself. He emptied himself. He said, I hold nothing for myself, but I give everything to the Father and to my neighbor. I keep nothing for myself, but everything I have is for my Father and for my neighbor. Jesus tells the chief priests and the elders that they didn't believe. He said, if you would have believed, you'd be saved. Some people think that this belief is just an idea in our heads. Like these polls that they're always giving. How many Americans believe in God? And people get really worked up over that. Who cares? Satan believes in God. How's that going for him? Well, Legion proclaimed Christ as the Son of God. You remember that demon? Earlier in St. Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is coming towards him, and what does Legion say? What do you have to do with me, Son of God? The disciples didn't know who he was. The demons did. They knew exactly who he was. What did that do for them? People think that belief is saying, I know who God is. Okay, now you're at the level of demon. What's next? When he says believe... He means to do, to have our minds changed, to have our hearts changed, 
to have a new heart, to have a new spirit. That means we're not just doing what God wants us to do. That means we want to do what God wants us to do. That means we hunger to do what God wants us to do. That means we thirst to do what God wants us to do. To have both will and work for his good pleasure. May we both will and work for the pleasure of God and for our salvation and for the salvation of those we love this day and forevermore.